This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. How are you doing? Pretty good. <laughs> How's your week Pretty going? Good. No, not bad. Not bad. Yeah. I have the house to myself tonight, so I'm going to pull a Gordon. Probably, uh, yeah. uh some, let's some see, su- order some sushi, sushi. drink some yeah. bourbon. Drink some, some liquor. <laughs> okay. Maybe Gin. watch a TV show and yeah. work on my dot files or something. Perfect. In front of the TV. <laughs> Move over to Mutt or <laughs> set up, set up WeChat <laughs> on a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> that's, that's my next big task. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Phase. So, just like passing in my Twitter feed, like another Objective-C development tool released on RubyGems. It's just like, this is my mission now, <laughs> is stopping this bullshit. Is it to get everyone on Homebrew or off yeah, of RubyGems? Well, I don't care if it's on Homebrew or tarballs and make files or i honestly don't care but i don't want it on ruby gems i just don't this isn't this isn't just ruby gems i don't want it on ruby gems i don't want it on npm because like i've had to install like two things on npm recently right node like oh that's what it was uh shit what did i just it's keybase wasn't it keybase yeah but also ios sim so Eloy, the guy who did uh, CocoaPods, he also wrote this thing called iOS-Sim, and it's written in Objective-C, and it's a simulator launcher. So I was doing my kind of bi-weekly fantasizing about being able to work in Objective-C files. This is going to be a super neckbeardy episode. I'm just really, but I was doing my like biweekly. Uh, I really want to work in Vim. I don't want to work in Xcode. Right? Um, it was when Xcode five one came out, and all of a sudden broke XVim again. And every time that happens, I'm like, oh, I should not be relying on this so much. But anyway, so I did my. It was like my biweekly. Hey. Let me see if, like, how far can I actually get with this? So I started writing a stupid plugin that I would be able to run Xcode projects from Vim, right? So type a command, create a build, and run it from the simulator. And so the thing I was using for that is this thing, iOS Sim. And it's written in Objective-C. And the installation instructions say to install it with the Node package manager. There's no Node.js in this goddamn thing. But they want you to install it with npm like that. Why? That doesn't. It's just infuriating to me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hit that the other day. I was trying to install uh, Keybase. Yeah. And it wanted npm, and I just said nope. Right. <laughs> just right. Stopped. I don't care that much. It's it's dumb. Like Keybase again. My main argument, right? The fact that Keybase is written in Node or whatever the hell it's written in should not affect the way you get it, right? It should just be available via Homebrew or Mac ports or Fink if you really want to do that or a tarball or something, right? But like it shouldn't be – you shouldn't have to install it with inside the context of a language. That's bizarre. Anyway, sorry. That just happened. <laughs> so it's frustrating. And it looks like a cool thing. I think you'd be into this. It's called OBCD. OBCD. 
yeah, de- deal with obsessive compulsive issues of programmers and Objective C. So it uses. Um, Wait, why would I be into this? What are you trying to say? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, it uses RuboCop, mm-hmm. which is like a syntax checker thing, and it can do that for Objective C, basically. So. They say, for example, it can tell you that the name of the file in the comment doesn't match the, match the actual file name. Oh, so it only does one thing right now. It helps you fix the comment style at the top of your .h and .m files. So that's not super useful. Yeah, that's But dumb. it could be in the future, right? If they expand this, it could be a cool syntax, like a linting thing. Although we already have linters. It sounds like, uh, have you looked at Objective Clean? Right. That's what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah. I played with it a little bit. I, I went through their survey and was like, you know, how do you prefer your code to look? And then it right. gave me this config file. Right. It'd probably be handy, but I don't get too hung up on like the minor things like that, like in a code review. Yeah, me neither. I mean, it's nice. Like we have an internal thing that does some style checking stuff automatically and it's turned on for like, and it's for Ruby. The, you know, checking line length, checking some specific stuff that we have in our style guide. And it's actually kind of nice to not have to worry about that as a reviewer. You know what I mean? Like if I look at a pull request, it's nice for me to know that something else is going to check the kind of nonsense style stuff so that I don't have to say like there's extra white space on this line and this comma should go here instead, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it's nice, but it's not – I don't know. It it leaves you to focus on the bigger issues. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather care worry about architectural issues. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, totally. Whatever. Anyway, so Gordon, do you read? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, how awkward would it be if I like if I actually was totally illiterate? <laughs> like that just came out on the podcast. You just understand code, but not yeah. like actual words. Yeah, right. <laughs> like you're like, yeah, this code looks fine, but what are these like two slashes and then all of this gibberish right here? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand all like the brackets and the semicolons, but it's the, the these things in between all the brackets and the semicolons. <laughs> that, was, that was just my painful segue into mentioning the fact that we had an iOS book release this week. Yeah. Here at that bot. Yeah, we should talk about that. <laughs> Sorry, you totally screwed me up. Uh, um, yes, I read. We're great at this. I know. Professional. Anyway, iOS on Rails was released yesterday. It's a, it's a beta version, and we're releasing it on GitHub with, like we've done with our other books. It was authored by two people here in the San Francisco office, Diana and Jesse. And it's primarily aimed towards, I think, Rails developers who are interested in making client applications and maybe even iOS developers who want to develop their own backend. You know? So if you have a little bit of programming knowledge, you can run with this book. You know, if you're really good with Rails, learn about the client side. If you're really good with iOS, maybe learn how to build your own backend a little bit. I think it's uh, $29 right now during the beta period, and you get access to the GitHub repo. If you can suggest changes during this period, and you'll keep getting new versions of the book as it comes out. And in addition, you get the full source code to two applications that are built alongside the content of the book. It's awesome. It's really good. Yeah, I haven't read all of it, but I was doing some, um, you know, they asked for feedback like initially. And so I read a bunch of it, and it was really awesome. Especially, like, I don't know Rails that much. So it's really geared towards Rails developers. Am I wrong about that, that it's geared towards Rails developers? 
I think it depends on who you ask. If I yeah. ask Jesse, she's like, yeah, it's geared towards Rails developers who want to learn iOS. And I asked Diana, she's like, no, 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 it's for iOS developers that want to learn how to build backend. <laughs> so I'm going to say it's okay. both. <laughs> sure. No matter, no matter your discipline, you're going to learn something new about like, how the other side works. Right. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Mm-hmm. So check that out. iOSonrails.net. Where you can find more information about the book, go do that. Yeah. What else happened this week? So I wanted to continue our discussion from – I don't know if we talked about it last week. We, we did. Yeah, last week we just kind of briefly mentioned yeah. how we, we don't want to check for nil in initializers. Yeah. So uh, we got an email from Samuel Goodwin, who I feel like has emailed the show before. But he just said, uh, hey, guys, just wanted to point out that using properties inside your init can trigger KVO. If the things observing any of those properties expect other stuff in that object to be initialized and they are not because your init method isn't done yet, that results in problems. Um, this is why we tell everyone not to use properties inside init and dialic. So basically all week I've been having this conversation every single morning with Jack in Stockholm about if this is feasible for us to do to stop using the conditional and the pros and cons of doing that and the pros and cons of not using the accessors in init, right? And just using instance variables. Mm -hmm. So this is actually something that has been brought up before uh, by Jack. And I'm not sure if this isn't kind of a straw man argument. I don't know that it's realistically possible for this to be a problem. So the, the argument here is that by using accessors inside init, you could trigger KVO, which, we, which could trigger side effects in unrelated objects. That's technically true. But realistically, what would have to happen in order for that to be a problem is that you'd have to register one object as the observer of another object before that object is even initialized, right? So I don't even know how that would work. You know what I mean? You couldn't do it externally. Right. Could you? Um, I can't think of a single way that you could get a reference to an object without creating it first. Right. Which, at that point, initialization it, is yeah, done. Initialization is done once it comes back from init. So we've you either already, have yeah, full self or nil. Right. And we've already hit those properties at that point. So by the time you're setting up KVO on that property, we've already hit all of those accessors and the setters. So that doesn't make sense. The only way I can I can figure that it would happen is if you somehow subclassed an object, and this may not even be feasible. But if you sub, you'd have to like subclass an object, override init, register yourself as the observer for your own properties, basically. But your inherited properties, like something that you've inherited from the superclass, right? 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 Your inherited properties. So you'd have to set that up and then call super init, right? So, so like that already seems like a really bad idea. Whether or not you're using accessors, well, let's let's think about that. Like, what is the line of code that registers an observer? You have to do self add right. observer, right? What is self at that point? It's nothing, right? So you still need to call super init, even in the subclass. At which case, in which case, again. Every accessor that we've hit, that's already happened. Yeah. So he, he mentions not using it in Dialic either, and that, that is totally valid. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about memory management stuff a few 
maybe, I don't know, a month ago or so. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's totally valid because that is a problem. That was a problem. You've registered on an object and it uses accessors in Dialic. And so by the time your, your callback fires, the object's been pulled out from under you is essentially mm-hmm. what happens. Um, so that's an actual problem. But again, we use Arc. So we don't need to do like – like the problem was doing self.foo equals nil inside Dialic. So it triggers a KVO update and then you release everything and then you get a crash because you get a bad access. Or a, yeah, it would be in – It'd be a bad access. But since we use Arc, we don't usually implement Dialic anyway, and we definitely don't ha- worry about nilling out our properties inside Dialic. Are, are you saying it's okay now? Because we'll be deallocated, everything will be zeroed out. If someone else gets a, an observation notification, they'll try to say, message us, but then it's just nil and it's a no op instead of right. trying to message like a zombie. Right. Okay. Right. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. Yeah. So I don't know, but the one, so so this this argument, and I I I'm only bringing it up because I've I've heard it a couple times, right? And I think that this is again like kind of like we were talking about last week. This feels like one of those things that is almost like a like a verbal like a some kind of Objective C folklore. Right, you know what I mean? Though it's like this, it's like this thing that everyone just everyone just keeps passing down. Like we keep passing this down. Oh, you can't use accessories inside in it or dialic because KVO will fire, and you know that's that's bad. You can't use this. That's bad. But I don't think it's applicable anymore. You know what I mean? It, again, I think that Arc changes this stuff for us. Arc kind of changed the rules, and we just never got around to updating our like mental model on how this stuff works. Is that completely wrong? No, I'm kind of with you. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm all for questioning conventional knowledge. Even if people come back and say that I'm an idiot. Right. Like I, I think we should at least, you know, challenge these assumptions. Right. I mean, at the very least it's a learning opportunity and at best, I don't have to type all this, uh, stupid nil checking code anymore. So aside from this, I've been having, like I said, I've been having this week, like week long conversation with Jack, um, who's way smarter than I am. So it's been really good. <laughs> uh, but having like this week long conversation with Jack and we keep coming back to, we're, we're trying to like talk about this pattern, not checking for self. And what we keep ending up back to is side effects, right? That the actual the actual issue that the conditional guards against so essentially there's there's two sides of the same coin that we've come to one is you don't have to use the conditional and you can o- and then you can use accessors right if you only use setters and getters pre- preferably just setters but if you only use accessors inside init then you don't need the conditional because of what we talked about which is that if self comes back as nil, then who cares? Self.foo. If self, if self is nil in self.foo, then it's a no-op. So whatever. Just skips it, right? Even if there's side effects in the setter, right? Even if you do something else inside your setter, if nil, if self is nil, it doesn't matter. It's a no-op. That method is not going to get called, right? Right. So that's one side of it. The other side is that you have to use the conditional and should only use IVARs, right? Because 
if you can't access the IVAR directly if self is nil. If self is nil and you try to access the IVAR, then you get a seg fault. Right. So that's why you would need the conditionals if you're using IVARs. His argument is that you should only use IVARs because aside from KVO stuff, what you really don't want are side effects in your init method. So if I call using the accessor in and of itself isn't bad, but the fact that using the accessor is just calling set foo and set foo could be overridden to say instantiate another object or do some crazy internal mutation. Mm -hmm. Then you don't want that to happen during init. Right. Yeah. So to use a concrete example, I'm thinking um, UI table view, the set data source method has a side effect of calling reload data on itself. Right. So let's imagine we're in the initializer for UI table view and you don't know this and you set something on or you, you know, you'd use self.datasource equals something for some reason and then it's going to try to reload data. And then if reload data is dependent on some state that has not been set up yet in your initializer, you're hosed. Right. So I think as, in terms of behavior of UI table view, that side effect makes sense. I think they do make sense sometimes. Like you can't just say setters should never have side effects. Right. But that's just something to be aware of. Because then, then the problem really is in initialization, you just have to do it in the right order. Which I kind of have problems with. <laughs> You're saying that you'd have to do it in the right order if you have side effects in your setters. Yeah, I'm thinking like in the case of table view, reload data is looking for you know cells to lay yeah, out. Sure, but whatever. Yeah. Cells hasn't been initialized yet. Yeah. you know it's nil. Yeah, so it fails. But that might not even be a right. bad thing. Right. I think what I'm what I'm hearing is that there's no like oh this is really bad like this will crash and you'll have unexpected behavior in your application. I couldn't get it to like I, I had code runner opening r- open and I was manually setting like self equals nil inside this class and. You know, doing all this stuff. The only thing I could do is get a seg fault to happen when, and it's not like I did crazy, rigorous, manually setting it to junk data or doing anything that seems like it shouldn't happen. But um, so his main problem wasn't that, like, obviously, if I write the class, I know if there are side effects, or if I write the class, I can ensure that my setters don't have side effects. But if you subclass my class, and then you override my setter and then call super init, right? And your overridden setter has, sub, has side effects. And you call super init. And then my setter, my init calls the setter. The setter kicks off side effects. Now we have side effects to our, because of our init method. And I don't know that I have a good answer there. Yeah, that's a fair point. But we keep saying side effects as if it's like an absolute bad thing. Or it, it's not. I mean, just having side effects isn't bad on its own. Right. But you can't be guaranteed that they're not going to be bad. Or you can't be guaranteed that they're going to be safe to happen during initialization. Right. So that's what this all really comes down to is safety. Right. Trying to minimize ways of shooting yourself in the foot. It would be so much easier if, like, the implicit self arrow, right? So you access an, uh, an IVAR. And implicitly what it's doing is self, like, line bracket, right? Like, self arrow underscore foo mm-hmm. instead of just underscore foo. 
it would be so much nicer if that also worked with nil. But I mean, because it's because since it's a message, like that, it doesn't really make sense. I don't know enough about compilers to understand like what would have to happen for that to work. But that seems like it would. I mean, that would essentially not fix the issue. I mean, then we'd still be able to argue about accessors over IVARs and side effects versus not having side effects. Mm-hmm. But at least then we wouldn't have to do this conditional check. So how has this discussion with Jack swayed you? It kind of hasn't because just mainly because I totally understand that I'm being idealistic about side effects and this may be because I've been getting into functional programming, <laughs> but I don't like the idea of side effects for s- setters. Like in an ideal world, I would say no side effects for, you know, initialization, deallocation, setters or getters, right? And I'm willing to make one kind of broad sweeping general uh, exception there for lazy initialization of objects, Right When I want to get an object, I just kind of want it to be there. And I really like the pattern of not having to worry about when I create a thing. I just want it to be available when I ask for it. And so I, I, I totally understand that I'm being completely idealistic. And actually, that the table view controller, the side effect with set data source, that's on table view or table view controller? Uh, on the table, table view. view. Um, that side effect, it makes sense from a code brevity standpoint. You know what I mean? Like, yes, 99.999% of the time, if I set the data source on something, I probably also want it to refresh itself. I'm, I'm guessing it's more than just code brevity. It's just it's enforcing self-consistency. You've told the table view that it has this new data source, but yet it is still showing old data, right? Right. So it, it's still showing um, cells for objects that no longer exist. What if you didn't reload data and you went to delete a cell that now does not exist according to the current data source, that's an internal inconsistency exception, right. guaranteed. So I think it's necessary in that case. Like you've changed the data source, we have to reload. Yeah. So I don't think we can say like you should never ever have side effects in your setters. Like if, if you have to do it to maintain a consistent state, that's just what you have to do. But do you think that that's different because it's at the UI level? You know what I'm saying? So in Haskell, you have this concept of IO, right? And like we've kind of talked about some things around this in the past, but this idea of like functional core imperative shell, that's kind of the way Haskell works. And you can think of IO as being like the interactions in and out of your program, right? In Haskell, that's the only place that you can have side effects. Like literally, it's, an, it's just enforced by the language. You can't have side effects unless you're inside this IO monad. That would be kind of like the UI layer on iOS. Like you're saying, that side effect kind of has to happen because this consistency has to be kept between the external view, right? What you see as a user and the internal representation of what's actually on that view. Mm -hmm. So what if you could limit side effects as much as possible Limit side effects entirely, but only allow yourself to have side effects at the UI level. If your class is prefixed with or or subclasses a class prefixed with the UI prefix, 
Like take that same take that same side effect and apply it. Like I can't think of another class that would have to do that, right? It has to reload its data because it has to refresh and representation of itself, right? Right. It knows like the class knows that it has a new data source. And the class doesn't actually care. Like if you tell the class to delete an object at an index from the right data source, it'll just delete it. Right? The problem mm-hmm. is that the view has to be redrawn. Right. Okay. So my point is like this this discrepancy between like the code, right? Like the internal data representation and the view representation. The data representation doesn't actually have to have that side effect, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't. The it's the view because it's connected up to this view, that's where the side effect has to happen. I think I, I think I see your point. Is that the view is kind of the end of the road. It it's now facing the user. Exactly. The user is giving all the input to the view, whereas exactly. everything kind of hidden behind it is self consistent inside the program. Exactly. Then it's just objects talking to each other. Right. But you know, in something that's event based, at some point you're waiting on a human to do something, or they're going to try to take some action because of the way that it looks. Right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's an that's an important distinction. I can't think of any cases where you would have to change a value on a model, and as a side effect, something else mutates inside of this object. And if you did that, that's probably just bad design. Right. Exactly. Maybe we should just be making special exceptions for the UI layer. Yeah, because the UI layer kind of has two interfaces. There's right. like the visually drawn interface to the user, right. but then that view object still has its sort of code interface in addition to its implementation. And that's something that's unique to view objects as opposed to anything else in the domain. Right. I think it's an interesting way to look at like iOS apps specifically or any client-based app I think you can look at. And that's what this functional core imperative shell thing is kind of talking about. You have this kind of messy interaction. You have this layer. The UI layer is like this weird like hybrid, like you're saying. Like it essentially has two interfaces. And one of those interfaces is somebody's finger. <laughs> and it seems super prone to bad input. You know what I mean? Like we can codify our public interfaces, like our public interfaces in, in code. Like we can use type checking. We can use all this stuff to, you know, NS assert. And we can do all these things to verify and codify the correctness, so to speak, of our interactions between two objects. But once you have like a user tapping on a thing, like that's where it kind of gets messy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think it could be really interesting to really, really, really try to treat the UI layer as this necessary evil where shit's just kind of messy and prone to error and then use some more. I'm not, I don't want to get like into, I'm going to keep saying functional programming in this episode, but use kind of more functional programming concepts on the internals because we can use those concepts a little safer then we'd be able to at the UI level. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. No, that makes sense to me. Okay. Can you tell me where I could find out more about this idea of um, functional core imperative shell? Yeah, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but Gary Bernhardt has a couple talks on it. So we'll throw those up in the show notes. That, that's kind of the, the – his he has a talk, and I mentioned it before, but he has a talk, and I think it's called functional core imperative shell. But 
No, no, it's called Boundaries. And it's it's about this concept that I don't think he invented it, but he's been going on and on about it. And the idea is exactly what I'm saying. Like he actually does this really cool thing with Ruby where he shows a functional function, you know what I mean? And then an object oriented method and then a functional function that acts like an object oriented method. So he kind of shows like the three different stages there, which is really neat. And then he talks about, he wrote this app, like a command line utility. And I think it's a Twitter thing. And it's using like this concept where he was able to shove all kind of the weird interactions and all the imperative stuff. He's able to shove up into essentially the UI layer, which was like all the command line input and the parsing of the command line input. And then everything that like the actual meat of the program was all done with functional concepts and like immutability and, you know, value in value out single transaction kind of stuff. I really, I, ever since I watched that, which was like six months ago, I've been thinking that this is a really cool pattern. It would be really interesting to see this applied to something as large scale as an iOS app. So we'll add that to the show notes for sure. Cool. Where are those show notes? Show notes are going to be at podcasts.thoughtbot.com slash build phase slash 33. And as always, you can contact us at build phase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter or app.net at build phase. Also, ratings and reviews on iTunes are always desired. Uh, and we'll add a link um, to the book in the show notes, but be sure to check that out. Uh, you'll be able to find it at iosonrails.net. Good chat, Gordon. Yeah, you too. <laughs> I'll talk to you. Sweet. All right, later. later.